Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's Tuesday morning, and it feels like the Red Sox are on the brink of falling out of things. I'm Chris Cotillo. Welcome back to the Fenway Rundown. Tough week for the Red Sox, who I think missed an opportunity going only 3-3 three and three on their road trip to Pittsburgh and Baltimore. Lose a couple of tough games over the weekend, 15-10 to 10 on Friday, and then 5-3 on Sunday on national TV. And their reward for a 500-week, three against the Blue Jays, three against the Rays at Fenway as they continue this gauntlet of teams they're chasing in the American League wild card race i think this is going to be you know if last week wasn't a do or die week for the red Sox, this one will be uh, a lot of really tough games coming up against two teams they've played really horribly against so far this year so a tough challenge there this week we are going to welcome a first-time guest to the fenway rundown you know him from 98.5 the sports hub you know him from nesson it's tony maserati who's done a good job calling the games this year on nesson in his first year Tony and I are going to get into the Red Sox, where things have gone wrong, what he thinks that they can do to get out of it this winter, and then talk about him, you know, what it's been like in the Nesson booth, how this year has been different than when he used to cover the team for the Boston Herald and Boston Globe. So really enjoyed the discussion with him. Uh, obviously, a lot of experience in front of a microphone. So without further ado, here's Tony Matt. And we're pleased to welcome this week Tony Maserati from 98.5 The Sports Hub. You know him as the host of Felger and Maz, and now uh, also from Nesson as a color analyst on Red Sox games. Is that is that this much into the season? Is that weird to hear still that you are uh, in the booth, or have you gotten used to that title? Uh, good question. I would say, I mean, I, I think I've gotten used to it. I've gotten more comfortable with it, but it's still, you know, the whole thing is still a bit of a whirlwind. Right. So kind of came out of nowhere as I've said before, but uh, yeah, I wish they had a better season, be a lot more fun if right. they were playing well and they were playing meaningful games. We're going to get to that. We're going to get to uh, kind of what your experience has been like and you know what surprised you, things like that. Let's start as we usually do on here by, by talking about the team. Um, I think, you know, what Chris Smith and I did the show last week and we said anything short of a, a sweep in Pittsburgh and then, two of three in Baltimore, five and one, anything short of that was probably a disappointment for them to go three and three, uh, have a really bad loss that last game in Pittsburgh. And then, you know, that, that, you know, football score on Friday and then a tough loss on national TV Sunday night. As we sit here Monday night recording, I know games are going on across the league. The Red Sox are off. They're six games out with, with 40 games to go. I mean, do you think, I mean, I don't know if you believed or not before last week, but do you think that week is kind of the, the nail in the coffin for them? Yeah, absolutely. I felt similarly to you. I thought going in uh, that it was four and two at a minimum and in all likelihood five and one or better. And, uh, you know, look, the Pittsburgh game hurt. You know, that would have given them four and two. 
Mm-hmm. But when you get a team like that, you've got to, you know, you have to beat the stuffing out of them. Yeah. They didn't do that. And then you, despite the game on Friday, they still had a chance to win the series in Baltimore. They pulled one out on Saturday and then, you know, tied going into the bottom of the eighth on Sunday. But look, over a course of, I don't need to tell you, Chris, that over the course of 162, every single flaw you have is going to get exposed. Every single one. And they went into the year with a handful of them. They're ending the year with a lot. Uh, I think we all have criticisms of the way the team was constructed. I think we all have criticisms of the way they've played. So, you know, I, we're looking at a another last place finish here, five of them in 10 years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in this market, given the expectation and with their resources, there's just no excuse for it. So I don't know how they get out of it. I mean, that, that the part that scares me more than anything is the future. And in the short term, I don't know that it's very good. Right. Well, there's obviously a lot of guys up this year and, and a lot that they could possibly do over the offseason. We'll talk about that. What what to you tells the story of this season? I mean, if you had to sum it up in two sentences, for me, it's an incomplete roster that, you know, was already teetering on, is it going to be competitive? And then to get decimated by injuries like that, it wasn't a roster that could withstand you know, a handful of injuries, forget the, you know, 15 that we've seen and from key guys, whether it be Evaldi now going on the IL for a second time or Kike missing two months. I mean, it just seemed like they were short to begin with. And then when you get their injury bug, which happens to teams that, you know, it's, it's kind of luck based sometimes. And I think there's other factors at play there, but to me, that just wasn't a roster that could withstand that. So I agree. And I would say, look, to me, I never focus on the, the injuries, because, you know, there's not a lot you can do in some cases on those. I try to focus on the stuff you can control. And I would say I think the part they should be most frustrated with is the part that was self-inflicted. So, you know, to me, I would say largely them being in this predicament is self-inflicted. And whether that it, now you can, you know, you can spread that out among a, a million people. Yeah. You know, some of it's roster construction. Some of it is putting Garrett Whitlock into the rotation, right? which I thought was the single biggest mistake of the season. Mm-hmm. Uh, had Garrett Whitlock just remained in the bullpen, they could have endured a lot of their difficulties. They would have won a lot more games, and maybe they'd approach the trade deadline differently. There's a million things they could have done differently. You don't have to run John Schreiber into the ground like they have. Right. I mean, you know, the, the ripple effect of that one decision was huge. Mm-hmm. And then I would say it feels like Chris sales injury or injuries, depending on which one you want to pick to some degree, self-inflicted the one before the season, everybody conveniently forgets that we say, Oh, well, they were counting on Chris sale, Chris sale coming out of Tommy John having pitched at the end of last season was supposed to be entirely available to them this year. Yep. 100%. He even said at one point, I'm not broken anymore. Right. Right. Said that time and time again, even after the the last start in, in the the one full start or five inning start in St. Pete, he said that. Yeah, and so I, like I look at that one and say, well, how did he break a rib or you know crack a rib or whatever stress fracture, what have you? Yeah. How did that happen throwing before the season? So was that self inflicted? Certainly the bike accident, quote unquote, if that's what it was, self inflicted. So. Uh, you know, and then, I, and then I would go, I'd also go further as to say, well, the injury to Michael Walker, well, he has an injury history, self-inflicted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think Evolving. a lot of some of it, yeah, some of it's related to decisions. Some of it is you know bad luck, but 
to me, the part that you focus on is, like I said, is the ones that were, you know, they had clear choices to make and they chose certain paths. Yeah. And some of that's, you know, whether it was a player or Bloom or whoever. I mean, I, I just think that for this, for them to be under 500 is gross underachievement, gross. And I think one that I'd add to that is, the, you know, anybody who looked at the the outfield before the year would think, you know, these guys are short on outfield help. You know, Jackie Bradley should be a fourth outfielder. I know on from two to six, you guys have criticized that trade a lot. And I think obviously we see you know what the results of that have been. You know, Renfro is, you know, probably an above average player still in Milwaukee. Bradley gave you nothing offensively. I think that if he comes aboard as a fourth outfielder and he is, you know, your defensive replacement can get some starts against righties and you have, you know, another good hitter in the outfield, that is going to be a better way to construct the roster from the start. And then we don't have the, the Jaron Duran disaster in center that's really played out too. Agreed. 100%. Uh, you know, when they made the deal, when they made the Hunter Renfro deal with Milwaukee, I thought Bradley was going to be an extra. Yeah. Right. I thought he was going to be a guy they carried on the bench. They use as a fourth outfielder. They play him in center. They play him in right. Uh, you know, they probably get better than 163 or 164 out of him, whatever it was he hit in Milwaukee. And, uh, you know, just by the, I mean, his career average, I think going into the year, at least with the Red Sox was like 238. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if you get 238 off the bench and maybe a little bit higher, if you're picking spots and he's playing against righties, maybe you get 245, you get a handful of home runs and some good defense. Yeah. Fine. But that would, that was under the presumption, like you said, that they'd go out and sign a right-handed hitting outfielder to play right field at Fenway. They didn't do that. Tommy Pham, do that back then. Well, right. And so there were there were just a million things that you were easy to second guess. It's one of those things like, if you're going to go over the luxury tax, well, then what are you inching over it for? Right. Like go at on. that stage, right. I'm not saying you need to go 50 million over it, mm -hmm. but whether you're a million over the tax or 10 million over the tax, at that stage, what's the difference? You're not paying a huge tax on that. You know, it's 20% yeah. or whatever it is on the first. And I got to have the thing in front of me, but 30 or 40 million. So to go 10 million over is only going to cost you 2 million in tax. Mm -hmm. It's just not enough to get bogged down in the minutia of it. But then the, the bullpen and the pitching staff to me were big ones. Uh, as much as right field, the, the trade was made for the future. They didn't fortify the bullpen. Right. And they didn't fortify the rotation. You know, even Walker, as good as Walker has been, he's missed half the season. Yeah. So they made 15 starts. So there just wasn't anything there you could count on. And usually in a, you know, usually in, like my dad always used to say, you get what you pay for, right? Right. So if you if you take the cheaper, safer route around it, economically, you're not going to get the bang for the buck on the field. Yeah, I think with the rotation, they were banking on, like what's happened with sale and what's happened with Paxton, I think are their absolute worst case scenarios. I don't think they should have banked on those guys, but still you're looking at to get, I don't know, six combined innings from the two of them probably is what they're going to have for the season is absolute worst case scenario. And I think that they thought the kids could step up and, you know, pitch well Crawford obviously has Winkowski did for a stretch there, you know, Bayo, they probably rushed him a little bit. And, and I've talked on here before about wondering about long-term effects of that. Yeah. I think they entered with the depth and they felt good about that, but, um, you know, when you have so many hits, you just can't withstand it. To me, though, the bullpen, there's just there's so many guys you could go out and get cheap, you know, and they just needed to hit. They put themselves in a position where they had to hit on at least one John Schreiber, right? Like this waiver claim who comes out of nowhere. And that still wasn't enough. 
Yeah, and again, they had one of the most valuable relievers in the game. Yeah. They had one. You know, Whitlock last year ranked like 16th in war among all relievers. And, you know, and, and again, he didn't even really pitch in any sort of high leverage situations until a little ways into the season at a minimum. Uh, and then they really started to ramp him up later in the year. So the point is he might've been even more valuable than that. And that one to me is the most mystifying thing. Mm -hmm. I just think it's inexcusable. They knew they, they knew they needed help in the late innings. Uh, and I think that one's on bloom. I mean, you know, I've been around too many managers to know that a manager would say, Oh yeah, I'll take a starter over a lever. The only guy I've ever seen, seen do that was Bobby Valentine. We know how that turned out right. with Daniel Bard. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I just think that that was mind numbingly foolish. Yep. It just was robbing the 2022 team of one of its greatest strengths in hopes that what they could get more bang for their buck in the long term by making them a starter. Right. It, it was it was ridiculous. If they had had a strong bullpen at the time, I would have said take the shot. Mm -hmm. But to do it the way they did it early in the year and leave themselves as vulnerable as they did in the bullpen was negligent. That was a really horrible decision. Yeah. I, I've used this line before. We talked about it last week on here. Like they viewed it. I think the people who made the decision viewed it as how many innings can we get from Whitlock when they should have looked at it as how many games can he affect? Right. It's a, and it's a great way to, to separate it because his ability to come in and, you know, it work for them two or three games a week. That's massive. Yeah. I mean, you're talking, you know, 65 appearances or whatever over the course of a season. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you don't, you don't want to get them up to 75, 80. So you're going to manage them on some level. I just think that, especially with the way the game is managed now, it's so bullpen heavy, you know, so bullpen reliant, you get in those key spots late, particularly in this division. If you're going to win at Toronto, you're going to win at New York you're going to have to get big outs in the eighth and ninth innings. Yep. You're going to have to do it. There's no way around it against big time righties too. Exactly. Yeah. It was just look, you know, we're in the business of second guessing everything they do all the time. Yeah. But like all hyperbole aside, the Garrett Whitlock decision was atrocious. Mm -hmm. It was atrocious. And, uh, and it really hung the team out to dry. I mean, and you know what? At the end of the day, they got Whitlock hurt too. Right. So I, I just don't think it, you know, that whole thing I find curious. So they signed him to this, like not to get on this road, but they signed him to this contract that is a reliever contract. You know, it's four years, 18.25 or 18.5, whatever the final number was. And I know there were incentives in there on innings. On, on game started, I think. or and Okay, it was or... game started. So you know better than I. But I would also tell you that well, you know, a good starter in and of himself, if he pitches a full season, is worth that 18 million or more in one year. Right. Max Scherzer is making 43. So uh, I, you know, it felt to me like it was a value play. <laughs> you know, like yeah. we're going to sign him to this reliever contract and then we're going to convert him to a starter and we're going to maximize that deal. It was more about winning the deal and getting the max out of Garrett Whitlock than it was about doing what was best for the team, which blows my mind. Yeah. Like I, I, the only word I can use is negligent. I really, I thought it was negligent. 
that's interesting. The the exact I just looked it up. The exact language innings related escalators based on him accumulating a significant number of innings as a starter. So they signed him thinking he's going to be a starter down the line and they'd be attainable if he was starting. Um, but I still didn't think that would happen, you know, as early as it did this year. No, nor did I. And does it say the specifics there as to what the incentives? I don't know are? if those ever came out. Yes, yeah, I'm trying to find that out because I, I again, I sort of think it's. Well, then who, who are you making him a starter for? Are you making him a starter to to say that you pluck this guy from the Yankees and you got this right. great value? Or, are you, you know, because what was best for the team was to leave him in the bullpen. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that that's even gray. Right. And there's a lot of people you know in the organization who were on that side of things back in, you know, April and May as well. I want to ask you a different topic, but being in the unique position you are, you know, show on 98.5 and then being in the booth with Nesson, how do you judge and gauge how relevant the Red Sox are in Boston compared to when you covered the team? And I think what we can call the heyday now, I mean, is it, is it drastically different? I know the Patriots run the show around here now, but, um, but what are your thoughts on that? Oh, so how do I gauge it? I like, I could give you numbers and say, right. you know, the TV ratings are, you know, let's call them 25% of what they were in 2007. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would give you a pretty good indication as to where things are in the same breath. I would tell you that just, you just know, like go to a barbecue or sit at a family dinner, you know, and, and depending on the age group, you may get a lot of Red Sox questions there yeah. too. Right. But what, which team are the one, which team is the one that people are talking about the most? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I, like, I don't want to call it a, you know, it's cliche to say like, there's a buzz factor. Yeah. But I think that that's what it is. And, you know, you can always, when there's a crisis with the Red Sox, we get a lot of interest in them. Mm-hmm. But I would argue there's a crisis right now. And, you know, I, I feel like interest is waning. Whereas the Patriots are in a bit of a crisis at the moment. And I feel like people can't get enough of it. Like people are talking more and more about it. What are they doing? Is this going to work with Matt Jones and Matt Patricia and, so, you know, I think it's dropped a lot. I mean, again, in, you know, in 07, their local TV ratings peaked at an average average rating per game of 12, which is monumental. Mm-hmm. That's an average rating. Just to give you an idea, now they're doing like a three or three and a half. Yeah. And so that's a quarter of what it was 15 years ago. So you know, a lot of that is the sport. A lot of that is the market, but the interest levels come way, way down. It's dropped through the floor. I don't know. I don't know how they fix it, Chris. Yeah. I mean, part of it is I, I think there's obviously a, a factor of, you know, them winning four times. Does it, does it almost like turn fans who were like waiting for that moment that are, well, it happened. So we're less interested in it. I mean, I think that's part of it. And then, you, young people, you don't have the long suffering fan anymore is going to tune in no matter what, right? You probably open yourself to more fair weather people that way. Definitely. So winning, you know, you, there's that old, there was that old theory, winning would be the worst thing that ever happened to them. <laughs> and, and on yeah. some level that's true, right? Cause how do you replicate that story? The only way to do it is to go a hundred years without winning again or 86 mm-hmm. years. So th- that story, it was going to come down after that. I also think that the sport as a whole has just been, Uh, too slow to adapt to a world where let's face it, everybody has shorter attention spans. There's instant gratification You can get everything on your phone right away. And the game moves too slowly. 
So I do think there's a chance next year with new rules that more people will tune in. There will be a curiosity factor. How does it look? Is it better? And, but I, I worry that a lot of young people are just done with it. Like, yeah, I hope not, but I, I do think that a lot of people say, it's not for me. I'm going to watch something else. And I do think, and we've talked about this, you know, before that the, there is, uh, they're, they are doing a good job getting people to come to the ballpark more than ever before. Like the last couple of years there, you look around and it's not, you know, people who are necessarily diehards being there for every game and watching every pitch, but they're out in the truly terrace where they can, you know, have seltzers and they're turning into more of that atmosphere. You hear it in the music and all that stuff. So getting people who aren't, you know, maybe your, your diehard, you know, seam heads in there, I think they're doing a good job with, but that, there is always that worry. Is that sustainable? They're, they're coming there and spending money, but um, is that, you know, a, a night out once a summer or is it, you know, are, are they going to come back? And I think that's a question they're going to have to face in, in this post COVID ever for sure. Definitely. Yeah. Look, and again, I like the idea of making it a gathering place. Um, and Fenway is a great place to do that. And they're always going to get the out of market traffic and, mm-hmm. You know, again, you've been in more games than I have this year. But one thing I've noticed is on weekends when there's a team in here, it feels like they're overrunning the ballpark yeah. more than they St. ever. St. Louis, have Milwaukee, a lot of those teams. Totally, yeah. When those teams, the Yankees, in now, even right. I mean, it's a big crowd. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't know whether that is twenty-five percent of the crowd, or and it used to be fifteen, or but you know, coming to Fenway before was a hard ticket for those people. I don't think it's I don't think it's all that tough anymore. Yeah. No, it's there's there's been times where there's one Yankee series, the first time they were in town, it felt like if not 50 50, you know, 60 40 Red Sox fans, it was it was loud whenever they scored. You, you talked about the crisis that you think the Red Sox are in. So, how do we how do they get out of it? I mean, the what is in your mind the perfect offseason that is it you go get do a massive splash like a judge or an Otani? I mean, is there infrastructure changes? Uh, does John Henry talk to the media? Maybe that'll be a fix. Uh, like, what what are the things that you think can get them back to being a contender or getting out of this crisis that you say they're in? Well, so here's the scary part. I don't think there is an easy fix. And uh, you know what you're going to have to bank on and no Red Sox fans going to want to hear this is that Chris sale comes back and is healthy and pitches a whole season and wins 15 games. Okay. And I say 15 games, but you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's hard to quantify what a good starter is anymore, but as a front end of the rotation starter, uh, because the best candidate, the best pitcher on the free agent market, I was looking at some of the names earlier today, Clayton Kershaw is listed as the number one pitcher on the free agent market. Yeah. He's, he's 35 years old. Right. There's a lot of question marks. I mean, now that Musgrove's off the table, there's a lot of, a lot of question marks out there. I mean, really? And then the second best starting pitcher listed on the market is Nathan Avaldi. Right. And Walker's probably have. in the top five. Or, yeah. Right well, around right. there. So, so now you're talking about guys with injury histories that you already have. Mm-hmm. So you're looking for an upgrade there. Um, now, so the, how does the pitching get fixed? You, you bet on sale. You hope he comes back. Bayo takes a jump and went, you know, and is competitive in year two and is a winning pitcher for lack of a better description. The other guys fill out your rotation and stay healthy, whether that's Pavetta, Waka, Cutter Crawford, whoever. Mm-hmm. Uh, you build a functional bullpen. Tristan Cassis comes up and hits sixth and does a pretty good job. Uh, and, you know, for the buzz factor, yeah, something like Judge. I mean, 
there's a ton of work. It's not like they have any, it's not like they have this wave of players coming in. Like in 2015, when they finished last, and I'm trying to get this right. Was that the last time they finished last? I think it was. Well, 2020. Oh, 2020. Right. right. Okay. So prior to 2020, the last time they finished last was 2015. Well, at the end of that season, you know, Bogarts had already been here, but that was Betts, Mm -hmm. Devers. Like you started to get into this next wave of Red Sox players and they were good in the final two months of that season. Yeah. They played pretty well. I don't think you have that now. Mm -hmm. And so the answer is, how do you fix it? I don't know. There's no easy. This is the part that I think is most alarming. Like there's no easy way out of it. You say, when, you know, when they went from, uh, now I'm going to get all my dates mixed up here. Okay. But when they went from 2015 to 2016, is that when they signed price? Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, cause um, Charrington get fired in the middle of 2015. Right. Okay. So you knew they were going to go out on the market and they were going to sign a pitcher. And you knew David Price was out there. You knew it. And that's what happened. Yeah. I don't know. That that option doesn't exist now. And I don't think they're going to trade for Otani. Mm-hmm. You know, High and Bloom's going to spend all this time accumulating young talent or young players. We don't know how talented some of them are. And then what? Go trade him for Shoei Otani? It just doesn't add up. Right. If you, if you thought the Soto deal, I mean, it's probably going to be equal to that with not the same control, but how he affects both sides of the ball. You'd have to imagine it's five or six good young players. Totally. I so mean, I, I don't think there's an easy way out. Do you like the idea of them going for judge? I do. Um, just for the sizzle. Yeah. Right. And that's the, that's the media person in me. It's probably not the most prudent decision in the world. And it would definitely preclude them from keeping Bogarts. Mm-hmm. So I think Devers, they have to sign either way. Right. I agree. But if you go out and sign Judge and you put him next to Devers in the middle of your lineup, he's saying some other, you, know, you still get Trevor Story. Uh, you put some other pieces around him and you try to put together some semblance of a pitching staff. People will be interested. I mean, right. for a while. Yeah. If you bought him out, then they'll, they'll tune you out quicker than they did this year. <laughs> right. So it's risky. It's risky. Yeah. Well, they have all the financial flexibility in the world. They can hang their hat on that, and we'll see how you know, it comes into play. I think, you know, one of the most interesting and important off-seasons in a long time for, for the franchise coming up. Definitely. Uh, so let's get to you, uh, which I, I think is, you know, arguably a little bit more interesting than even the, <laughs> the Sox stuff we talk, we're talking about. Do you – so obviously you did this for a long time covering the Sox. You've been back – around the ballpark more this year than you've probably been in what a decade is that definitely yeah a long so, time what how different is just the access you see now and kind of the day-to-day and you know the how different is the clubhouse compared to what it was when you were doing this on a daily basis what is i guess surprised you just being back and being around i mean the 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 difference is enormous it's it's so you know again when i was there and my last year really was like, oh, nine ish, oh, 10, you know, 10 a little bit. Yeah. Um, but the, you know, even, it was just starting to wane a little at that, that time. But, you know, in the time that I was there and I was lucky, they were so good for so long. Uh, it was a historic period in terms of the championships and all that other stuff. Uh, and they were the show in town. Everybody wanted to see the Red Sox. Yeah. And, 
you know, when I came back, the thing I noticed, you know, again, there's a COVID factor too, but the thing I noticed the most was just the buzz at the, and I say the buzz at the ballpark, it was, I felt like I was at a game in, you know, Milwaukee in the nineties or two thousands or just markets where we used to Detroit, we used to walk into and it felt it was almost borderline depressing because there just wasn't that much interest there. There weren't that many people there. And I'm overstating it because let's face it, Fenway is still pretty good relative to a lot right. of places, but those peaks, you know, from call it 98 to about 07, that 10 year period, 08. I mean, was the page, it was the Pedro factor too, the Pedro mm-hmm. years. Uh, the place was electric every night. I mean, every single night. And it was a great place to work. And, you know, and, and I don't need to tell you about the clubhouse part of it. Yeah. Um, and look, some of that is me too, right? I, I was in the clubhouse a lot more. And so I felt a lot more connected to what went on in there. And I knew the people and, uh, but now it just feels like they're never around. Nobody really gets to know anybody. Uh, I think it's got to be brutal for, you know, for people like yourself to do the job. It's got to be hard. I know, you know, I know there were cell phones and everything else, but mm-hmm. I used to learn a lot of stuff hanging around the dugout, hanging around the batting cage, um, you know, milling around the clubhouse and people didn't mind you being there. Now it just feels like there's this total, you know, what do you want? And then get out of here. And uh, not to mention the fact that, you know, and I'm going on and on here, but you know, there, there were no limits back then. The yeah. clubhouse opened three and a half hours before the game and it stayed open until the final 45 minutes before the game started mm-hmm. an hour before the game started. That was it. So we you get. could go in and out of there as you pleased if you were looking for someone. Right. Now you get what, 45, 50 minutes 50 and you're minutes, done. Yeah. I mean, that's and, it. And that time is basically just seeing who's the, the worst hiders, you know, in the players' lounges at whatever ballpark we're at. I've 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 been saying to PR to other people, and there's probably, you know, a lot of old school baseball writers out there who disagree with this. Don't give me an hour where nobody's in there. Give me 20 minutes where I don't know what the number is. 60% of the guys have to be in there. So you can at least have some access. Like if they're going to hide anyway, why do I want to, you know, no offense to my friends. Why do I want to spend an hour talking to Sean McAdam and Ian Brown every day on there when I could do that for the next eight hours of the day? So I, I say, you know, mandate it. So they have to be in there for 20 minutes. And if there's, you know, a, a guy that you need over the course of three days, he has to be in there at some point. Totally. Yeah. Look, it, it's, it's bad now. I mean, it's just, it, it's bad. They're never in there. They don't want to talk to you. And um, you know, the whole, uh, you know, the access is the whole thing about getting any sort of information or creative story or, yeah. and I know the whole thing has become adversarial. And again, I know you can get a hold of anybody if you build a relationship anytime you want on their cell phone or whatever. But to build those relationships now has got to be brutal. You know, I mean, I, I remember being able to walk in there and on a road trip and a guy'd be sitting at his locker and I'd go over and say, hey, you know, like Mike Stanley, who used to catch for the Red Sox, always stuck out to me because the team was in uh, Baltimore to start the season. And I went over to him uh, and said, hey, you know, and we had spent some time in spring training together. But I said, he goes, what do you need? And I said, nothing. I just came over to shoot the breeze. You know, mm-hmm. I don't really know you and figured. And, um, you know, you can't do that anymore. Yeah. It just as, you know, and getting to know the people was understanding their psyche and how they approached the game and what they believed. And, 
and how they would respond in situations and stuff like that. And uh, I don't know, man, it's, it's gotta be, it's gotta be brutal now for someone like you again. Uh, Jackie McMullen of the globe said the same thing to me years and years ago when <laughs> they eliminated, they took writers off of charter flights. Mm. She said, that's, that's how you get to know them was on the charter flights. And I'm like, well, you know, the ballpark's enough. We get plenty there. Right. It works. Yeah. Uh, but it's, now I don't know. I don't know how you do it. It's it's I, you know, I think there's way too much time just standing around in there. That's, that's the biggest thing to me that that's a waste. Um, I wanted to ask you, you know, I know that you kind of had this, you know, obviously your years covering the team and being around and knowing as much do as you do about baseball, you knew that you were going to know what you were doing, but I think you had this line, like, you know, you didn't really know what to expect with this Nesson experience. I know you're not in there for every game. You haven't done, um, you know, we're not doing 162, but you've done enough now where you can kind of gauge like, you know, what, what it actually is like, what have you learned? What surprised you? Have you really kind of gained comfort doing that? So I would say that, you know, the, the hard part for me initially was, and this was true when I started covering the team was the logistics of it. That's the stuff that worried me the most was, you know, when am I going to get there? What time do I have to be there? If the manager talks, how am I going to make it work with the radio schedule? Like yeah. all of that stuff. Then once I did a handful of games, I felt like, I, I, I remember like, and I would do a weekend then I would have a week or two off and come back. And the second time I came back, I felt like, okay, this feels more comfortable already. Cause I mm -hmm. know what the routine's going to be. Yeah. And that happened every trip I made back there. Right. So there I do three or four games, take some time off, come back. And every time I came back, it felt more and more comfortable. And that look, that process is still going on. I mean, it's not like, a, you know, in the, in the time that I wrote, for the Herald and then the Globe, I did, you know, 15 years, but I, I do remember the second year coming back and feeling different. Like, okay, now I know what the routine yeah. is. Now what I know what I'm in for. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the, I'd say the part that surprised me is how much I enjoy the games again. Like I really do like the games and, um, you know, Chad front of the Globe did some, like late season assessment of, you know, the new people in the booth. And mm -hmm. one of the things he wrote was something like, he sounds happy to be at the ballpark again. Yeah. And I thought, and I thought, do I sound happy to be at the ballpark again? And I thought about it and I said, you know, I guess I am happy to be at the ballpark again. It didn't even occur to me because I just feels natural to me. I like being there. Mm -hmm. You know, I like being there. And, uh, you know, I was there for a long, so I don't know if it's just a familiarity thing or whether it's the game or, but I do feel every time I've done it, I feel a little more comfortable. The whole thing has still been a bit of a shock to me. Right. Uh, I don't know that I'm fully 100% over that. Like, and you know, for all I know, they're not going to ask me back next year. So who the <laughs> heck knows, right? Like, you know, the, it's not the, I mean, I think it was a trial or an experiment for everybody. Mm -hmm. Um. But, you know, from my standpoint, it's gone pretty well, I think. Uh, so it's been a lot of fun. I've liked it, you know, and I, but I like, you know, I like the radio job too. I'm not, right. you know, I love the radio job. I, I didn't want to give up the radio job to do this. That I knew. Mm -hmm. I also don't know how I would feel if I had to do 130 games. Right. You know what I mean? I did that when I was younger and that can run you into the ground. So how many games do you do now? We're probably... About 110, 120. Yeah. 
throughout the year. Yeah. Yeah. And that um, can wear you out. Right. Yeah. I mean, even that, I mean, I've been there, you know, mm-hmm. it's a lot and you know, and oh, boo hoo hoo, you cover baseball for a living. Like who wants to hear that? Right. Right. So, but it's, you know, it's tiring. It's every night it's road mm-hmm. trips. You're changing every three days. Generally speaking, you're moving to another city yep. every week, early morning flights. And then you cover a seven o'clock game, all that stuff. Exactly. And no one yeah. wants to hear us complain about it, but it's no, no. And <laughs> look, legit. again, I, I liked it when I did it, you know, then I got married and had kids and my life changed. Right. right. But I, I do like being back there. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the question is how much more, how much less uh, and, you know, you know, can it, how long can it work if, uh, if everybody's still interested in doing that, but I've been really pleasantly surprised with how much I have enjoyed being back there. I wasn't totally sure I was going to like being back at the ballpark, yeah. but it's been, it's been good. How have you, and I'm sure you've been asked this a million times, but has it been difficult, you know, like having that role, has it changed what you can say from two to six or some of the things that you've, you know, thought that, you know, now that you are kind of around the guys again and around the team, that has that changed at all? So I would say it hasn't changed how I think or feel. Yeah. It has changed how I say it. <laughs> right. So, and you know, someone emailed me this, uh, and I thought it was a good point when, when it first came out that I was going to do the games on Nesson, this guy, I don't even remember the guy's name, but he emailed and he said, Hey, look, you know, I just want to let you know, I listen to your talk show every day and uh, you know, I enjoy it. It's entertaining. But when it comes to your talk show, I have a choice. If I don't like what you guys are talking about, or I don't like your attitude on any particular day, I can just mm-hmm. turn to another station and listen to something else. Yeah. When I tune into the game, I don't have a choice. I want to watch the game. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just take that into account. And I thought about that and I said, he's right. Like, you know, I've had a million people ask me, Chris, the, the, what's the biggest difference between doing the talk show and doing the games? Yeah. And I said, well, the biggest difference is, is the game going on. Mm-hmm. Right. So the game is in the game's the story. The game is the reason people are tuning in. And so your job is to really just kind of enhance it. The talk show is totally different. Right. Totally, totally different. And um, so, you know, I've, I've had to sort of try to figure out that balance and where the right space is. And, you know, as I, as the year has gone on, I think I've gotten more comfortable in letting, you know, the, the emotional me come out for lack of a better word. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I would also argue that maybe there's a benefit to me being not so emotional on the talk show all the time either, <laughs> you know? It's a lot of ranting and raving. Yeah. Um, is there, I mean, obviously, being around guys, do you ever feel like, and I don't know how much you want to get into this, that you have yep. to, that you ever have conversation with them about stuff that you've said on on the show? I mean, there's, uh, obviously, we've learned over the years, and I've, I've had it too, you know, guys hear everything, guys read everything, and for your microphone in every afternoon for the last decade to be, you know, as big as it is. Have you run into that? Not yet. No, not yet. I mean, I haven't had, you know, I don't really, I mean, like you said, the the players and the coaches and the manager, they're not around a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, and if someone, you know, I haven't had anyone pull me aside and say, well, someone's really, you know, pissed off at you or whatever. I haven't had that. Um, you know, I sort of, I don't really get to the ballpark in time for me to be in the clubhouse. Right. Um, 
you know, I, I've spent some time in there, particularly on road trips. I've been around a little bit more. I try to sit in the dugout in the event. Anyone wants to say something, you know, and I find most of the time it doesn't really feel like they want to interact with us much either. And I don't blame them. Like, uh, so, so far the answer is no, I haven't, you know, I haven't had any issue or someone who, you know, who wanted to kind of seek me out, uh, that I've had to connect with, but I mean, that's going to happen sooner or later. Right. Um, as it does with everyone. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's definitely going to happen sooner or later. And I don't know what the, you know, how that'll all go down. A few guys have gone out of their way to say hello, uh, introduce themselves when the whole thing started. And, you know, which I appreciate, you know, like, uh, you know, Rich Hill was great about coming over and introducing himself mm -hmm. right away. And uh, same with Bogarts, Jackie Bradley, Trevor Story. Uh, a lot of the other guys are quieter. Some are more reserved. Uh, you know, sometimes you get on an elevator and in the hotel and then someone gets on with you and says, Hey, how's it going? And, uh, but I wouldn't say anything, you know, it's a, another thing I've noticed that how different it is. Yeah. You know, it right. used to, it was much more, uh, and I don't even know what the right word is, but there was much more of a, I don't want to say communal feel, but you know, you were, even though you're you're there to critique they you know they, they still recognize you as a human being mm -hmm. i feel like a lot of that you know and I, I, there's not as much of that now as there was when i was there writing yeah no that makes sense last thing i want to ask you sure. um because i think i've already kept you too long but uh obviously Eck is leaving the booth um there's been a big story in the last couple of weeks uh from just working with him and the times you have and, and getting to know him as, you know, someone else in the booth, what his, what has he taught you? What has he kind of meant to you in this last, these last few months? Oh, I think it's his energy and his passion more than anything. Yeah. I mean, he, he just, he's dialed into every pitch. He's really, really focused on every pitch. And uh, you know, so that's something I think anyone could learn from him. He really is locked into the game from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I covered him for a little while too. So that, you know, I've yeah. known Eck and years ago when he got into the hall of fame, they allowed him to um, invite some writers uh, to go up to his orientation with them. So I went with Gordon needs of the globe. Uh, there was a guy from the Bay area that went, the three of us went with him to the hall of fame. So, you know, I don't, uh, you know, I wouldn't say that we were like super close or, mm -hmm. but, you know, we always got along fine. Um, you know, I remember running into running into him at the pool once when the Red Sox were playing in uh, Florida against the Marlins. And, um, and, you know, he just started talking about his days in Chicago and stuff like that. And so I get to know him a little bit back then. And, you know, he's been a great resource for me just to try to get a, you know, an understanding of how the whole thing, you know, how it works, you know, when to make yourself accessible, when not to make yourself accessible, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm, I'm sort of speaking in generalities here, but yeah, I, I just, you know, I really valued his input. And for that matter, Dave O'Brien as well, you know, they were obviously the, the two people I've worked with, or obviously I've worked with the most. Mm -hmm. Mike Monaco has been terrific in the handful of times that we've been together. Um, you know, I haven't worked with Yuke, I, who I covered as well. Uh, yeah. I haven't worked with Millar, who I covered. But I, you know, overall, it's been from that standpoint, it's been great. And um, 
Yeah, I think we all had a I had an idea that Eck might retire at the end of the year. So mm-hmm. I don't think anybody was fully shocked. But um, you know, look, he's really he's really good at what he does. And he's a he's a really good guy. Right. So from that standpoint, I think we're all gonna miss being around him. You know, he was fun to be around. Well, uh, I think his retirement just means that you get to step into that, you know, hundred games a year now. <laughs> yeah, easy, yeah, right. right. Yeah. yeah, that'll be so easy. <laughs> Well, Tony, you're, you're making I, it sound like it's my decision, right? No, right. Well, I appreciate it. I know, uh, you know, after talking for you know four hours plus today or five hours, I guess plus today, uh, maybe the last thing you wanted to do is get in front of a microphone for another forty minutes. But I appreciate you hopping on, and uh, thank you. Yeah, listen, honestly, don't hesitate. Happy to do it. All right, I appreciate reaching out. Thanks a lot. Okay, you're welcome.